This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, everybody. Elon here. Along with Brian, we've got a special sneak preview episode of Keeping Carlson Free. And what are we sneak previewing? Our NHL 2018-19 audio almanac that Brian and I have been recording over the past couple of weeks. You've heard us talking about it on the podcast many times, pumping it up, trying to get you guys to pre-order, but you no longer need to pre-order because it is live. And if you're still on the fence of whether you want to get into it, we are releasing the first chapter about the Anaheim Ducks for free right now to you. And I hope that you'll like it. Brian, what are you doing? You're here. And usually you're not here to join me for these little intros before we release something like an interview or whatever. I thought you were just going to finish the whole thing by yourself. But since I'm talking, if anyone's curious before they get into it, like every chapter of the Almanac, there's 31 chapters plus a bonus one. Anyone who buys the Almanac has one week early access to our annual Goalies board episode. It's recorded. It's available. Some people might have already listened to it by now. You can too if you order. Anyway, we have 32 chapters. Each one is like an episode of Keeping Carlson. And we have one chapter to spend talking about the fantasy relevant and players and goalies on each and every team in the NHL. And also, if you buy into it, you also get a page of our points projections for every single player we talked about. 285 in total, plus 65 goalies. You have 25 plus hours of audio too. It's a huge package. Yeah. And it's a for such a meager price. It's like buying Brian and I like a happy meal, basically. And you're, I don't know. It's a little more than a beer for each of us. It's like two beers for each of us. Or, or two beers total, I guess, depending how fancy the places that you're going. But yes, check out keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. You'll have a lot more information there to help you decide with your decision. But also you can just listen to this episode and you can let that help you. I don't know if Anaheim was our best chapter, but it definitely was our first one. So we have a lot of energy there. <laughs> then I drank a lot of Red Bull all the way through to try to keep that energy up all the way through. Brian, I can't believe we just spent the whole last week talking to each other, recording 25 hours of content. That's insane. And like more than that, right? Because right. that's the edited down amount of time yeah yeah these were these were like 12 to 16 hour days of grueling research prep recording it was fun though (laughs) and editing we barely saw our families my wife forgot my name Brian, we had so many arguments also. I'm not, I don't recall the Anaheim chapter right now, but a lot of player projections that we argued about, a lot of goalie discussions. So what we did is every single chapter, you're going to hear in the first one, the easiest goalie tiering discussion because we just decided John Gibson, is he higher or lower than Ryan Miller? And that was it. But then as we go through the whole almanac, we're putting each new goalie into our tiers and it takes shape and we just argue and argue and argue until we finally get to the final goalie chapter where we, well, you'll see, maybe we settle on something. Maybe we just stop halfway through because we just can't come to an agreement. But okay, that is the Almanac. Like I said, keepingcarlson.com slash Almanac. If you're a patron of Keeping Carlson, you will get a 20% discount. So why don't we switch over and I'll tell you something really quickly about that before we get to the Anaheim chapter. We have this Patreon program where if you want to help support the podcast for a meager $5 per month, we're going to give you a ton of perks. I'm talking like a ton, like get ready to hear all of this. 
First of all, we are running the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. It's going to be the best fantasy league you've ever played. And we just did an episode that we released. The last one we released was talking about league design. And throughout, we dropped the whole format for the league next year. It's going to be a Yahoo points league. We have multiple tiers. So if you've never played in the cupful before, you start at the bottom. Then if you do well, you're going to work your way up, eventually get to the championship division, of which Brian is actually currently the champion. And no, it wasn't rigged. He's just that good. But yeah, so if you want to play in the cupful, that's free for any patron of Keeping Carlson of $5 or higher. What else do you get? We have our Facebook group, patron-only Facebook group. We reference it all the time on the show. We're having discussions all the time. People are asking fantasy advice questions, and everyone chimes in and gives advice, including Brian and myself. Also, other fantasy-related discussions. Whenever there's a game night, everyone just like piles in and is chatting about what's going on. Like, oh my god, this guy just scored five goals. I can't believe it. I guess no one really scored five goals last year. I know Barzil had like three five-assist games, which we talk about in the New York Islanders chapter of the Almanac. Anyways... I'm spiraling. So yeah, that's the Facebook group. Then we do a monthly patron cast. We're actually doing one on Wednesday of this week. So if you sign up to be a patron by Wednesday, you could join us live or you have access as a patron to all old patron casts that we've ever recorded. And they're always a lot of fun. Basically in a patron cast, we just take questions from the patrons. We answer anything they ask. We answer it ends up being like a lot of questions. Oh, what do you think about this player? What do you think about this player? Who are the top five of this top 10 of that? I usually end up making a big list. And then Brian rolls his eyes as I'm just reading down names on a list. It's a lot of fun. So that's PatreonCast. That's not all. You're going to get a 20% discount for the Almanac if you're interested in that. Uh, Then also, we make show notes all throughout the season. All of our notes that we use to prepare the show, we release that. So if you want to do a quick copy-paste or just get a quick rundown of what we think about each player as we go throughout the season. Is that it, Brian? I feel like that's a lot of perks for $5, right? Last year, we had different tiers, $10, $15. This this year, we said, you know, let's just keep it simple. Five bucks, you get everything. Everyone's happy. Yeah, and you also get 20% off the Almanac, which is what this episode's all about. So keeping Carlson slash, oh no, keepingcarlson.com slash Almanac, or if you're not sure how to spell Almanac, keepingcarlson.com slash guide also goes there. Yeah, what is this? Throwing shade at our listeners. Now, like, who doesn't know how to spell Almanac? It's, it's spelled like know. it sounds. <laughs> Maybe someone already went to slash guide and they're comfortable with that. They want to do it again. You know, little footnote here. When I access our page, that's how I do it. Oh, my God. Well, you do you, boo-boo. It's fewer fewer keystrokes. That's true. Okay, so with that, enjoy the Anaheim chapter, and we will catch you all with another episode in a week as we get going. Also, sign up for the Cupful. That's going to be amazing. If you're a patron already, you definitely want to sign up for the Cupful because the sign-up deadline for that is September 7th, so you're running out of time. We can't guarantee you a spot unless you register by that September 7th deadline. It's going to be insane. All right, bye, everyone. Enjoy the show. Yeah, let's get to it. Anaheim Ducks, Chapter 1, 2018-19, Keeping Carlson, NHL Audio Almanac, go. Chapter 1 of the Keeping Carlson 2018-19 NHL Audio Almanac, the Anaheim Ducks. Thank you all for listening and downloading this guide. Like, I'm so excited, Brian. Me too. I could not be more excited. Elon, you and I have definitely, we've had our nose to the grindstone, is that the saying, for the last 48 hours, getting ready for this, this moment, this historic moment. We'll all remember exactly where we were when the world's first NHL audio fantasy guide slash almanac 
was recorded. 48 hours? What are you talking about? I've been prepping for this for weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, me too, okay. for sure. Anyway. Like, 480 hours is what I meant. Well, hey, you know what? This is actually like five years in the making, because we've been doing episodes of Keeping Carlson, honing our craft, getting ready to record this monolith of an audiobook. Uh, I'm not all- saying I wasn't preparing. I'm just saying, like, I really stepped it up in the last 48 <laughs> hours. I don't want to seem like I didn't come ready for this. Okay, so let's lay the groundwork of what is going to happen. You downloaded this guide or you're watching live right now. Thanks to everyone in the chat room, by the way. You're ready for us to talk about the Anaheim Ducks. First, let's just give a quick intro about what you have gotten yourself into. Our plan is to do 31 of these, okay? So we're going to record Chapter 1, Anaheim, today. We're going to record Chapter 31, the Winnipeg Jets, maybe like Wednesday night. And then by the end, we'll have a chapter about every single NHL team. And our goal is to discuss every single fantasy relevant player on every single team we discuss. So we're not going to be talking about like Corbinian Holzer here in this Anaheim chapter, but we are going to do our best to cover every player that you might consider drafting in your fantasy leagues. And as we go, our goal is we have a projection spreadsheet that we've shared with you as part of your purchase for the Almanac. And as we go, we're going to be coming up with our numbers for points. For that player, a point pace. So we're not going to try to project injuries. That's too hard. We're going to assume if they were to play 82 games, how many points would they get? Brian and I will each come up with a number. Usually I'll probably agree with Brian. If not, then we'll put the average in the document, and then you guys will have it forever. So that's our goal. We're going to go through each player, come up with a number. Easy peasy, right? Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Uh, What else, Elon? What else do we need to say? We need to mention, uh, if we talk about a stat that you don't know, that you've never heard of, We're not introducing anything we haven't spoken at length about on Keeping Carlson before, but if there's something that you don't know about, uh, you can check in your projections page. There'll be a little little reference page in there that'll be a glossary, so you can take a look at that too. Okay, yeah, so when Brian brings up different stats, go check that spreadsheet. The spreadsheet that has all the projections will also have this glossary. All right, so Brian, I'm ready to go. Let's get into the Anaheim Ducks, okay? Let's dip into the pond and swim with the ducks. Okay, so Anaheim last year had a pretty good season, especially considering all the injuries they had at the start of the year, right? Like Getzlaff was hurt early on. Kessler was gone like for forever. Uh, Corey Perry got hurt. Like I remember at one point, Grant was the top line center. We were talking about him on Keeping Carlson as someone you had to potentially pick up for a while. We're definitely not going to be talking about him on today's episode, Derek Grant, I'm referring to. But yeah, they ended up finishing second in the Pacific Division. They made the playoffs. They lost four games to zero to the Sharks in the first round. So it wasn't a long playoff run. And now we're going to try to talk about if we think they'll do better and how all their players will do in fantasy next year. Man, but Brian, how crazy was it at the start of the year that every single... Like, Patrick Eves was also hurt. Like, we projected the top line going into last year was going to be Getzlaff, Eves, and Perry. And there was a stretch where all of those guys were hurt. That was crazy. It was like there was not a duck you could rely on to stay in the lineup. And then it was just like a collection of walking wounded. Whoever was in the lineup, you're just hoping... I remember we were talking about guys like Chris Wagner. Uh, I feel like there's a guy whose first or last name was Ryan, who was in the mix as well. There were There were a lot of... No-name guys getting bumped into high-deployment positions just by virtue of, of the depth just being shattered in Anaheim. 
Yeah, but now going into next year, it looks like everyone's going to be healthy except for maybe Ryan Kessler, but hey, he wasn't making much of an impact anyway. So let's start projecting each of these players. And we've got to start at the top with the guy I yelled at the start of this chapter, Ryan Getzlaff. Okay, he is amazing. Clearly another great year last year. So his three previous seasons before last year, he was actually below a point per game. He did have 73 points in 74 games a couple years ago. So he was obviously very close, if not at a point per game. But then 2017-18, last season, he was back in full force, even with missing a month and a half with a fractured zygomatic bone. Once he came back, he ended up with an 89-point pace, 61 points in 56 games. A really great year for Ryan Getzoff. He really showed that even though he is already 33 years old, he's still like just as good as he ever was, right? So going into this season, we've got to decide, do we think he's going to be a point-per-game guy again, or is it time to start expecting some regression in, like, your age 33 season? And if, because, like, Getzoff is amazing. I think he's even underrated in fantasy for how good he is, considering he's also great for hits. He had 96 hits in 56 games last season. He also blocks a lot for a forward, which is rare. He averaged around a block per game last season. Most forwards get, like, maybe half a block or a quarter of a block per game. So I feel he's, like, especially underrated in a bangers and match league. So, Brian, what can we say? Ryan gets as a superstar are you seeing any reason to expect his decline to start or should we just plop down 80 or 85 points into our spreadsheet and just move on when ryan gets got injured in the zygomatic bone which uh i think is don cherry's favorite bone you know how much he likes mike zygomanis there, there has to be a correlation there in any case oh by the way before we go further i'm, I'm grinding this guy to a halt elon do you know where the zygomatic bone is i'm gonna guess in the back Nope. Leg? It's in the che- it's the cheekbone. What? Oh. Yeah. Right in the cheekbone is where Ryan Getzlaff got hurt. It is not a, the zygomatic is not an exclusively female part either for anyone remotely confused. Uh, okay, but on to Ryan Getzlaff and and finally some player analysis. Uh, here's a fun piece of trivia about 33-year-old Ryan Getzlaff. Last season, his average time on ice per game was the highest it had been since 27-year-old Ryan Getzlaff skated 10 seconds more per game. So not even that much more per game. Uh, Six years ago, as a 27-year-old and 33 years old, all of a sudden getting a boost in his deployment, it was remarkable to see Getzlaff ready to continue being a workhorse, playing about 21 and a half minutes each night. Not always easy minutes either. For comparison, Joe Thornton has averaged fewer than 20 minutes per game in all but one year since his 29-year-old season back in... 2008, 2009, Joe Thornton is old. So credit to Ryan Getzlaff for playing such big minutes at this point in his career. And you might say, okay, sure, I bet Ryan Getzlaff needed every one of those extra minutes to be as productive as he was last season. But I will tell you, no, that's not the case. Getzlaff was not just getting extra points because of extra minutes. Sure, they helped. But Getzlaff also posted a top three points per 60 rate of his entire career. So last year really was a nice one for RG15. That's his nickname, right? That's like our version of EK65, but for Getz, are we going to do this for every player? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's a good idea. That one sort of fell flat. Anyway, the three (laughs) seasons prior, Elon, that you made reference to where Getzlaff was below a point per game, one of them, he was at 0.99 points per game. So let's grant him the difference. Another was still over 0.9 points per game. And then the real turkey of the bunch was 16-17 when Getzlaff had a 0.82 points per game, which comes out to a pace just shy of 70 points still. And in those years, Getzlaff pushed through some rough individual and on-ice shooting percentages that were probably the key reasons for him not quite getting up to a point per game. So there's a lot to like about Ryan Getzlaff and to think, 
he didn't return to being a point per game player. He doesn't have to return. He's pretty much been there for the last few years. His shot rates have gone down the last couple seasons, but Getzlaff seems to be compensating for that just fine by collecting more assists and primary assists at that, which is always encouraging. And I think it's fair to expect Anaheim to continue leaning heavily on him to anchor their top line and top power play. That responsibility and lack of internal competition for those roles should help Getzlaff to another season where he is at or approaching a point per game. All right, so Brian, let's do this exercise for the first time. We've talked about Ryan Getzlaff. Now we need to come up with a projection. So again, for everyone listening, we've got our spreadsheet here. By the end, every player that we talk about is going to have a number. We're each going to come up with a number that's a multiple of five. So afterwards, you'll be able to also see who we grouped together, who we didn't. And also, just to explain, we're not going to be projecting shots and hits and blocks because this would be like a 10-hour long chapter going through each player and every single one of their numbers. So let's land on a point projection for Getzlaff. Like we said, last year, 89 point pace so we'd be putting down 90 if we thought he could repeat it where are you landing i'm going for 80 points elon i said at or approaching point per game so i've got to back that up with the numbers and just like for for projection purposes since this is our first we'll we'll lay out a little bit more what it means this is like us looking at all the usual things we look at for analysis and then like running it through our guts and hearts to decide what number (laughs) we end up with like for conversational purposes. So, I mean, we hope we're right, but we're not working with a mathematical model here or anything. This is, again, looking at all the descriptive stats that we normally do, pulling them together and saying, all right, I think that this is what this all means. Right. And Brian, I will also say that maybe it's better that we're not using a model. Like, I don't want to disparage people who use models. That's obviously a great way to get started. But there's also a lot of other factors that come into projecting how a player is going to play next year. Like, the past doesn't project the future. Otherwise, we wouldn't even need to play fantasy hockey, right? Like, there's a lot of situational situations. There's the fact that he's older. I guess you could work that into the model. But, like, line mates, like, things are going to change. So I feel like I like the idea of you doing your regular Brian Com analysis. And then afterwards, we run it through our guts. We come up with what we come up with. I will be curious to see how we stack up to other projections by the end of the year. I know you're really nervous by me saying that you're so worried that our reputation is going to be soiled, but I actually... not even I'm, I'm actually more concerned that our reputation is going to be soiled by you saying that we can't use the past to predict the future. Well, not and fully. That, and that models are like, you don't want to disparage people who use models. Models are great. Models are fantastic. <laughs> The truth is that it's just not our bread and butter. This is our bread and butter. Okay, so well, we're you, gonna eat that bread and butter. You obviously misunderstood a little bit. I didn't mean to say that models are bad and people who use them aren't doing it right. I think you—it's good to use a model as a starting point and you pass in as much data as you can. And of course, the the past will predict the future. I'm just saying that at the end, when the model spits out a number, you have to put that number into context with everything that was going on and what we know is going to go on in the future. And that's why we're going to spend a lot of time in this almanac looking also at deployment, team changes, and we're going to do our best to come up with a number but right like you say it's going to be our gut in the end and i still feel like we're going to do pretty well and brian i'm going to make this easy i'm going to agree with you and again this is a point pace so maybe he'll miss some time he's getting older but i think at the end of the day gets off's going to be right around a point per game just like how he is every year so there we go we've agreed on our first projection let's go on to the next player that we have on deck to discuss ricard raquel he had a great year last year 73 points, or at least that was his pace. How about the fact that after Getzlaff returned from injury, he was even better? Like, for me, just saying Raquel was a 73-point player totally discounts the fact that he was playing for a while without his all-star center that we expect him to play with this year. So after Getzlaff came back from injury, 40 points in 42 games after January 1st. So Ricard Raquel was a point-per-game guy pretty much himself. He also took 230 shots, 
39th overall in the league. Hey, and he missed five games. If you uh, give him those five games, he'd bump jump up to like 32nd or 31st. Like He was really great for shots. The only risk I really see with Ricard Raquel at this point is I guess Patrick Eves is coming back. And at one point, a couple years ago, when he got traded to Anaheim from Dallas, Patrick Eves jumped on the top line and top power play to play with Getzlaff and Corey Perry. And they all did really well together. So now that Eves is back, maybe there's a chance that Raquel gets bumped from the top line, which would obviously hurt his value. But I mean, how likely really is that? It's not very likely at all. You know, I'm like the president of the Patrick Eves Booster Club ever since that season in 2016-17, where Eves really took advantage of getting high-end deployment for the first time. But even I know that Eves kicking off Russ from a year away, where he was also working through health issues, is not a threat to Raquel on Anaheim's depth chart. Raquel's worst enemy is probably Anaheim's lack of depth, though. There always remains the possibility that the Ducks might want him to try and ignite another scoring line. Uh, But then who would that really leave Getzlaff with? Or Getzlaff gets injured again, and he's playing with the likes of Derek Grant and Andrew Cogliano and Kevin Roy. Those are last year's examples. And Roy is the Ryan I was trying to mention in the first part of the show. In any case... Raquel is a top 50 shot taker. You mentioned that, Elon. And the cherry on top is that Raquel has also shown himself to be a pretty consistent high-end converter. If Raquel can keep up his career average 15% shooting percentage, another 35-goal season should be in the making, bringing him up to what I think is a healthy total of 75 points. Yeah, I'm with you. Just below Getzlaff. And yeah, like you say, there is a little bit of risk there, especially if Getzlaff gets injured. But like we saw last year with Getzlaff healthy, Raquel was getting almost a point per game. So I think we could bump a little bit for some potential risks. But he's young. He's amazing. I'm with you. 75 points. Put it in the sheet. Okay, next, let's talk about Corey Perry, who last year continued his decline, but he's still fantasy relevant, right? So he played 71 games, got 49 points. That works out to a 57-point pace, which is pretty good, like pretty impressive considering he was without Getzlaff for much of the first couple of months. And he ended the season with 24 points in 32 games after the All-Star break. So that's a 61.5-point pace. So Corey Perry picked things up, played like a 60-point player for the last couple months of the year. Still, like, he's had two straight seasons of not being able to score 20 goals now after being a 30-plus goal guy for so long. Like, I almost wonder, has Corey Perry had to change his game to become more of a playmaker since he's scoring fewer goals, but he's still putting up an okay number of points? Tough question to answer, Elon, whether Corey Perry has become more of a playmaker and changed his game, because unfortunately, the NHL does not track passes. Basketball tracks passes. Uh, baseball has all kinds of stats. So does football. NHL lagging behind, as we know. So get on that, NHL. But we are so lucky in the statistical community. A fellow by the name of Alan, who goes by the handle Loser Points on Twitter, has built a really uh, what looks like a reasonable model to estimate the number of passes that lead to shots on goal and has generously shared his data. And looking at the data that Alan at Loser Points has collected, it sure appears that no, Corey Perry has not added passing to his skill set to make up for dwindling shot and shot attempt rates. I've warned in the past of Corey Perry being the kind of player who does not age well, though for a few seasons from 2013 to 2016, he was posting the highest three-year shooting percentage of his career, staving off effects of decline, and maybe better put, obfuscating the effects of decline. 
But Corey Perry has now come back down to earth the last two seasons. And Elon, while I appreciate your optimism and seeing how Corey Perry played out the season, I think all that shows us is that Corey Perry still has runs left in him to offer, but maybe not full seasons. His deployment has left more and more to be desired. Perry's minutes resemble a second liners, and he spent a short run of games last year with Antoine Vermed and Andrew Cogliano on what doesn't even really qualify as a line that could be called a second line, more likely a third. And if Corey Perry does not find his way onto a line with Ryan Getzlaff and or Ricard Raquel, I think he finds himself in pretty big trouble instead. I think if he does find his way into the best possible deployment, 60 points is the matching best case. Reasonable chance he gets there, but I don't think he's going to go higher. I would have him a little lower than that, somewhere in the 55-60 range. Yeah, and like you say, he'll he'll probably be on the top line and the top power play, at least at the start. You can't imagine he's going to get bumped just because, like you say, maybe he won't be able to carry a line on his own. Maybe, like, Ricard Raquel is the kind of player who you could bump down just because you want to spark another line, kind of like what, what happened with Jonathan Huberdeau over in Florida. We'll get to them in, I don't know, a few days. But yeah, I feel like I'm with you again. 55 points seems about good for Perry. He had a 57-point pace last year. I am a little worried that the decline is coming. Like, may, I could definitely see him being close to 50 next year, but I guess we could err on uh, agreeing with 55. I definitely wouldn't say 60 at this point, but yeah, he still has some game left, and I feel like a lot of people are thinking of Corey Perry now as a declining aging player, so you could probably get him for some decent value in your drafts. Like, I feel like if he falls really far, he's still top line, top power play, clearly fantasy relevant. We're projecting him for around 55 points. I think that's about right, and yeah, don't forget about Corey Perry, you know? He's had a great career, and he's definitely fallen off, but he's still Still pretty good. Okay, next. Jacob Silverberg is a guy who used to have a lot of hype around him, right? Like, I remember when he got traded from the Sens to Anaheim, a lot of people saw Silverberg as a potential sleeper in drafts, and they were saying, ooh, I'm going to sneak... Uh, Jacob Silverberg into my team and he's going to end up blowing people away getting 50-60 points that happened with Mika Zibanejad when he got traded from the Sens but it didn't happen with Jacob Silverberg he has a career high now of 49 points which he hit a couple seasons ago playing with Kessler and Cogliano only a 43 point pace last season every once in a while he gets a sniff at the top power play but it's super rare also Silverberg's shots were down last year so overall just a really disappointing season for Jacob Silverberg where he pretty much lost fantasy relevance in a lot of like non-deep leagues do you think that Silverberg's even worth a late round flyer at this point or is he like at this like nothing more than like a 45 50 point guy we'd be dumb to project anything higher Last year was a step back for Jacob Sulferberg. After all the hype, it seems like it never really came to fruition. And now we're, we're sliding the wrong way. Silverberg saw 30 fewer seconds of ice per game, which dropped him below the 14-minute mark in 2017-18. And Silverberg was doing less with the ice that he did see with falling rate stats as well. What was probably most disappointing was that Silverberg's shot rate dropped. As you mentioned, Elon, his shot attempt rate actually held more steady than his actual rate of getting shots on goal. So that indicates that Silverberg was still about as successful in getting shots off, but not so much in actually getting them all the way to the net, which could be corrected. There's a chance that that shots on goal rate does bounce back up, but it's still not to the level that we hoped it would ever be. Silverberg also didn't have much help from his linemates, who were most often Andrew Cogliano, Ryan Kessler, and Chris Wagner. His lines were more successful at winning shot attempt battles. That's a good thing for Silverberg. And being stingy defensively, that's a good thing for Silverberg. But that's not putting goals on the board, which is what's good for Silverberg to his fantasy owners. So at this point, it seems like a reasonable role 
for the soon-to-be 28-year-old Silverberg to settle into is maybe a checking line center who can help control the flow of play, take on defensive assignments, contribute some secondary scoring. Uh, Silverberg probably did deserve a few more points last season, and Henrique could be an upgrade for him to play with at center compared to what Kessler was sort of offering him last season. Uh, But you're right, Elon. 45-50 is the right range of points to be expecting from Silverberg at this point. We're not holding our breath for a huge breakout anymore. I will be generous, though. As a former Ottawa senator, maybe he still holds a special place in my heart and give him closer to 50. Really? I'm, I don't know. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to go 45. So he'll land in the middle in our spreadsheet at 47 <laughs> and a half. Why, why do you think he'll do worse than I think? I just feel like he was a 43-point pace guy last year. That was even in a season where, with all these injuries, he actually got to go on the top line and play a little bit on the top power play next year if everyone's healthy. Plus, Patrick Eves is back, so that's another player for him to contend with. Yeah, he's, like, great. Like, the, that his best season was the year when he, Kessler, and Cogliano really clicked. And Ryan Kessler had a really good year that year. Now we don't even know if Kessler is going to play next season, so he'll maybe play with Henrique, like you say, who might be an upgrade. But I don't think it'll be an upgrade over how good Kessler was a couple of years years ago, right? Like, Kessler was, like, a 60-point guy. Henrique's always been, like, a 50-point guy. So, I don't know. I just don't see it. Uh, sorry. Okay. But yeah, like, I just I just don't want to ding Silverberg. Like, the, the offensive upside is gone, but he did get 49 points in 79 games while playing with Kessler, while things were clicking with Kessler and, uh, and Cogliano. But last season, that just wasn't the case. Like, he was playing with what seemed to maybe be a half-broken Ryan Kessler, and then Chris Wagner for another quarter of the season, Antoine Vermette for another 10 games. It seemed like he just really never got a shot to play consistently with a quality centerman, which would help him get back to approaching 50 points. But okay, I'm glad. We need to disagree somewhere. 45 or 50 points, that's the big headline. Jacob Silverberg, 45 points or 50. Brian versus Elon, Almanac Battle 1. It's not very exciting. Yeah, we'll see when we get to a disagreement that's more than just a five-point difference. Let's go now to Adam Henrique, who we were talking about. So he had a really strong start to his career, 51 points in 74 games as a rookie with the New Jersey Devils. Still his career high. He's actually hit 50 a couple of times, including last year, but he hasn't been able to beat 51. He actually paced for 52 last year once he got to Anaheim. So maybe he has it in him to finally get past that threshold. By the end of last year, he was playing on the top power play with Getzlaff, Perry, Raquel, and Brendan Montour. He was also centering, I guess, the third line with Kasha and Nick Ritchie. So I feel like, though, really with Henry, like it doesn't really matter if he's on line two with Cogliano and Silverberg or on line three with Kasha or Richie, or if you move all of those wingers around, all of them seem pretty similar to me. And Henrique did get a lot of ice time. So let's just say he was a middle six guy. He got around 50 points. I'm curious to know if you think he'll continue to be a 50, maybe 55 point guy, or if you think he has upside for more, because he could be on that top power play with guys who are getting point per game. Yeah, that's the big question. Will Henrique earn a spot on that top power play unit? I should also clarify, when I said Henrique could be an upgrade for Silverberg, I'm not thinking like as excitedly as I was thinking about Henrique playing with Taylor Hall over in New Jersey. My opinion on Henrique has sort of declined over the last year or so. And as is the case with Jacob Silverberg, 
we usually don't see new upside realized in a player's 28-year-old season, which is what you'd be hoping for from Adam Henrique uh, if you were expecting anything new from him. Moving to Anaheim didn't really increase Henrique's role. In fact, it pretty much assured that he's limited to the second line and doesn't appear to be a sure thing to join the top power play unit, just a hopeful. Uh, Henrique actually really fell off last year in his shooting attempts too. It's weird to see. I assume he can get some of them back. But really, over the last little while in his career, he's about as steady a 45-50.145 shot on goal guy as you can find upside for 55 should he get those regular turns on the top power play but I'm gonna place him right at 50 yeah I mean he's landed there many times before let's just leave him there also this year I'm with him not gonna argue with you on Henrik like I did for Silverberg so does that mean you don't think Henrik is going to get on the top power play unit I think he's probably the kind of guy who's going to get there sometimes and maybe not. Like, let's project it. So uh, Getzlaff, Raquel, Perry, and a defenseman for sure. It's possible they go with another defenseman. I've seen it. We've seen Anaheim do that, right? They've had Fowler and Montour on the top power play, and we'll get to their defenseman in a little bit. So Henry could get bumped that way, or there could be a sneaky guy like Patrick Eves getting on there. Ryan Kessler used to be there a couple of years ago. Last year, he wasn't able to get on the top power play, but he was like a shell of his former self. Well, I, I don't know. Kessler, it's really hard because of all of his injury issues. I know we're about to talk about Andre Kasha, who I feel like you are a bit into. You just picked him in our slow draft that we've been participating in all throughout the summer. So I feel like he'll get there sometimes. But even if he does, like he was there last year on Anaheim at the end of the season, and he still only averaged a 52 point pace while he was a member of the Ducks. So yeah, it's hard to project. I mean, I promise listeners, we'll take some swings at some I know right now we've pretty much projected everyone to be exactly how they were last year, but uh, we have some swings in us coming later, but I don't think I'm going to take it on Adam Henrique. So uh, how about we move on to Andre Kasha? Let's do it. Okay, so Kasha, 49-point pace last year, his second season. That's pretty impressive, right, for a second-year player, especially since he was only averaging 13 minutes and 55 seconds of time on ice each game, and he still was able to get almost a 50-point pace. Looking deeper, though, he was actually much better in the first half of the year. He put up 22 points in 34 games, which is a 53-point pace, and then he was only a half-point-per-game guy in his final 32 games, which makes me think that the end of the season is probably the more likely representative of what the future will hold, since at the beginning of the season, that's when everyone was injured, and obviously Kasha was taking advantage of some of the increased opportunities. His most common line mates at the start of the year were Nick Ritchie and Derek Grant, but that was like the top line for a while. His most common linemates at the end of the season were Adam Henrique and Nick Ritchie. So definitely a center upgrade. But like I say, he did worse probably just because it was like less minutes overall. In the end, I'm having trouble deciding whether to expect more or less from Kasha. Do you think he's closer to like the 50, 55 point guy or closer to the 40, 45 point guy who we don't even have to worry about? Yeah, and here's where we really try and quantify how much of an upgrade is Adam Henrique going to be as the second line center in Anaheim in all likelihood at least a couple wingers fortunes depend on how good he is. And I'm going to just repeat that I'm not sure Adam Henrique is a much of an upgrade over what the ducks were running last season. So I'm not sure his arrival bodes well or means anything extra coming for players by virtue of him being there. Uh, But let's look at what Andre Kasha might deserve on his own laurels. First half, Kasha shot almost twice as efficiently as second half Kasha, which is part of the puzzle, Elon, that you're trying to put together about why he was so 
good and had a run at the start of the season, but did not have that same luck in the second part of the season. And to quantify your comment, Elon, about what Kasha did in the time he was afforded with fringe second line minutes, Kasha's point scoring rates were good enough to actually beat out Corey Perry for third amongst Anaheim forwards sitting behind Getzlaff and Raquel. The way we've wanted to consider Jacob Silverberg for several years is the way that I'm now wanting to think about Andre Kasha. He's heading into his third year, age 23 season, just received a contract that shows some faith from the organization in him. I like him as a quiet candidate for 55 points, though, Grant, 50 is more likely. I would take him as my fourth and maybe even third Anaheim forward. So that means definitely ahead of Henrique. And then the question is, do you take him or Corey Perry? I probably still lean Corey Perry. Yeah, you got to take Corey Perry while he's the top line, top power play guy, I think. But it is interesting that you're saying cash is on the rise. Perry's falling. Maybe not this year. Maybe next year. Maybe 2020, 21 or 19, 20. What year is this? 1819 is what we're about to have. So yeah, maybe in 1920, that'll be the year that Andre Kasha overtakes Perry. So you're going with 50 points in the end? 50 points in the end, but there's upside for more. 50 points with upside for 55. Wow. I, I don't know. I, like, I almost feel like I want to be a wimp and say 45, but I like your wimp enthusiasm. Out. Wimp out. No, I'll, I'll, I'll go with you. Why not 50 points? And uh, let's see where it goes. Okay, a couple more forwards to go on Anaheim. We're getting into the guys who you may not want to draft, but might be good more as flyers late in your draft that you're willing to drop quickly if they don't work out. Maybe we've already been there with guys like Andre Kasha and Adam Henrique. Uh, let's talk about Patrick Eves. Okay, so like we said, he was really good when he got to Anaheim a couple years ago. Before that, he actually did have stretches of fantasy relevance on Dallas whenever he'd get on the top line or power play like it would happen we talk about it on the show hey everyone you know like ring the bell it's time to go and grab Patrick Eves he's on the top line of power play with Ben and Sagan and then like the next show we say okay everyone drop Patrick Eves he's off the top line of power play forget about him now so he was good never lasted he was showing signs of untapped upside when he got traded to Anaheim at the 2016-17 trade deadline he had 11 goals and 14 points in 20 games he seemed to really click on the top line in power play with Ryan Getzlaff last season Really rough for Patrick Eves. That's putting it lightly. He left after two games with what turned out to be post-viral syndrome. Then he got injured during rehab and needed surgery in March to repair a torn labrum. So he's apparently healthy and going to be there for training camp. But like he obviously hasn't been training as much as I'm sure he'd like over the past year. It's been a while. There's a chance he could get back with Ryan Getzlaff just because he clicked with him. And it's a nice opportunity to spread Raquel's skill. Along like Actually, before I was saying Jonathan Huberto, probably I should have said maybe Leon Dreisaitl is the kind of comparison where Dreisaitl would obviously be so much better if he was with McDavid. But Edmonton decides to play Dreisaitl on the second line just to try to spread some offense around. I want wonder if that could happen for Anaheim if they see that Patrick Eves can hold his own on the top line with Getzlaff. It's not likely, but I feel like it could happen. So it's really hard to come up with a projection because I feel like he's the kind of guy who could be like a hit or a miss. And even if he hits, he might slow down at some point, at which point we'll just say drop him, but just enjoy him for the ride as long as it is. But let's try to come up with something. What do you think about Patrick Eves and his value for at least right now? Well, I just want to clarify that Patrick Eves was emerging before he was traded to Anaheim at the deadline. After years of toiling as a fourth liner and maybe sometimes getting third line minutes uh, in 2016-17, Patrick Eves was being given 16 and a half minutes per game by the Dallas Stars, which is three or four minutes more than he'd been used to seeing as a member of the Dallas Stars. 
And he was crushing it in those minutes in a very sustainable way. Before he got traded, Patrick Eves had 21 goals in 59 games, which comes out to an almost 30-goal pace while the Dallas star. And then when he was traded to Anaheim, he proceeded to score 11 goals in 20 games. Saw a bit of a cut in minutes, but still essentially first-line deployment, which was really helpful for him. And like I said earlier, I, I hope he's got something to offer this season. He he can make a really great late-round sleeper or early-season waiver-wire pickup if he is healthy, if he does get good deployment this season. Last year at this time, I remember I was talking about him feeling pretty confident that Eves could score another 30 goals and put up a 55 or 60 point season if his first line deployment continued. And again, this is like a journeyman player, someone who spent like 14 years in the league, finally in that 14th year being considered someone who might, might deserve a shot on the top line, an extended look on a top line. The problem with how I was feeling last year, uh, my unbounded optimism that he could get 55, 60 points again, is that now he's another year older. He's 34 years old, and he's going to have to whip his body back into shape, having been through a lot over the last year. Like missing a season is one thing. Missing a season and all the stuff he had to go through while he missed the season, whole other thing. But I really would love for Patrick Eves to succeed. It would be a great story for the former first-round pick and perennial bottom sixer to get a couple great years in the limelight before his career is over. I'm going to stay conservative, though, thinking that he might not be a priority for the Ducks on the depth chart, which is why I'm going to give him 50 points. What? But I like him more than Henrique's 50 points. Wow. Okay, Brian, we're in for our first disagreement here. I think that Patrick Eves, who missed all of last season, had like this like viral syndrome, had this like surgery. He's, what, how old is he? 34? 34. I'm putting him down for 35 points. And what? I think that's going to be his pick. He's going to be a bottom sixer. And like, I think he's an interesting guy to grab at the start of the year. And maybe he'll have a little run here and there on the top line. But I mean, has he ever really been that much better aside from a couple of years, a couple of years ago? And now he's like, he's oh. never been given the opportunity. And then he was given the opportunity mm-hmm. and he nailed it. That's so true. I'm, I'm, I'm like, it's all about whether he gets the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got kasha to compete with he's got i guess silverberg to compete with Uh, like there's a there's a few players that he needs to pass on the depth chart Corey perry maybe nick ritchie i don't know but there's got to be a way for like the ducks have to at least give him a shot to show that he can continue what he started back in 16 17 i'm not saying like the reason he's down to 50 and not up at 55 60 it like that is the penalty for having missed a whole year Okay. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess you say that it's all about what deployment he gets. I think it's also all about how healthy he is and how much his body will be able to sustain playing in a league with people who are like 14 or 15 years younger than him. But, but he was great as a 32-year-old when he was playing with players who were 11, 12 years younger than him. Yeah, but that I don't know. Like Maybe I'm putting too much weight on the fact that he missed a whole season. I think it's really hard to come back. He didn't just miss a whole season chilling. He was like going through surgeries and rehabbing. Like, like, you know, people need to train. Like, these are professional athletes yeah, at the height of their skill. If I miss a week of work, the next Monday is really rough. <laughs> right. Okay, well, we are going to miss a week of work. Or at least I'm taking off a week of work next week to record this almanac. So we'll see how I am when I come back. But okay, let's move on to Ryan Kessler. The last forward, we'll talk about another guy who's really tough to predict because we don't know really what his health status is at the moment. Last year was really rough. It seemed like a savvy guy to stash at the draft. After news came out that he'd miss a few months to start the season after having hip surgery, we were saying, yeah, grab Ryan Kessler at the end of your draft, put him in your IR." 
you get a free Ryan Kessler. It was like a 55-point guy, especially in a league that counts hits and blocks. He was great. Like two seasons ago, 58 points in 82 games, 146 hits, 75 blocks, 20 power play points. He was on the top power play. He was great. And like that advice turned out to, uh, hopefully it didn't like hurt anybody because we were saying to use it as a late round pick anyway. But he came back at the end of December and proceeded to put up a sad 14 points in 44 games. He was on the second power play. He, like, bumped by Adam Henrique. He couldn't get on the top unit. And now, to make matters worse, Elliot Friedman broke news in May that he may end up missing next season. The latest Roto World update says GM Bob Murray isn't super confident in Ryan Kessler being ready for at least the start of the year. So, Brian, uh, projections aside, that's going to be tough. We'll throw in a number just because we have to. But, like, what's your draft strategy with Kessler at this point? If news comes out that he's hurt, he's not going to start the season, are we still going to recommend for people to grab him as a last pick to stash in the IR because he has has the potential to be a 50-plus point guy when he next plays? Or is last season an indication of what the future holds? And even if he does play, he's not even going to be able to hit half point per game. He's not going to be worth your while. So whether you want to stash him at the end of your draft, of course, depends on a couple things. One, will his face-offs and banging peripherals help you? Uh, that's one reason to want him. Another question is, what's the quality of the other players left in your draft? Because your last pick in a draft is essentially your first free agent pickup, right? You're just like, if you are uh, if you have the seventh pick in the last round and it's a 10-team draft, then there are three other people who get like free agency priority over you. And then you can swap out your last pick for whoever still remains after the draft. So you, like, it's a, it's a risk-reward thing. Um, I would still be tempted to stash Kessler at a really low cost right out of the gate. Uh, even though it didn't help last year, he did not come back at 100%. Uh, of course, the concern is that he's not going to come back at all this season. And like back in April, there was talk like he was really excited uh, to have an off season to train and get ready. But now that there's news coming out that he's still not feeling great and that all of next season is in question, you wonder if he's really getting himself back into shape. Um, so I would probably keep my distance from Ryan Kessler unless you're in a really deep league or it's just a really low cost move for you with the last pick of your draft stash him and then you're happy with whatever you can pull out of free agency the day or two after all right so when he does play what number are we going to put down for the pace that he'll be able to put up like a half point per game yeah well like the thing to remember about ryan kessler i've been down on him a lot over the last several years and i was wrong in the one good season he had but that was the one very good season he had over his last seven seasons like i've never been much of a fan and now he's coming off a mysterious injury in his age 34 season my hopes aren't as high for him as they are for Patrick Eves in like a somewhat parallel situation. So what I'll do for Ryan Kessler is if he does play, I would normally want to give him the 45-50 that I always do, but I'm going to take him down to 40-45, not knowing exactly what he's been able to do to prepare for this season. And by the way, calling him a 45-50 point guy, I've only been wrong once hmm. or twice if him getting to 53 points is outside the fair margin of error to you. Okay, so you're putting down, what, 40 or 45? 43. Can I do that? No, we're, we're multiples of five, but 43 minutes. Round it to 45. All right, you're doing 45. So how about I'll put down, I'll make up the difference for you, Brian. I'll put down 40 so that the average can go and be 42 and a half like you want. So how about that? Okay, that's great. And I see in my original notes for Ryan Kessler, I did have him at 40. So I probably, 
Elon, change me to 40. I want to be 40. <laughs> okay, we'll both put him down for 40. And the magic of spreadsheets moves his average projection to 40 from 42 and a half. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's move on from the forwards on Anaheim. Let's go to defense, 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 defense. The, the most important part of the game, am I right? And we got to start with Cam Fowler or Dewey. Actually, that's going to be the big discussion of who is the top defenseman now on Anaheim. But let's start with Fowler. He had a rough start to the season, only two points in seven games before going down with a knee injury. But after that, he came back and he had 30 points in 60 games. But then he got hurt again at the start of April. So tough start, tough finish. But in between 30 points and 60 games, it's a solid half point per game pace. Not too bad for a defenseman over 40 points. There was some concern that he'd get bumped from the top power play by Montour at some point, And he did lose his spot for a bit in late February. By the end, he and Montour were both playing on the top unit most nights along with three forwards. Which again, Brian, makes me concerned about someone like Adam Henrique. My question to you about Cam Fowler is, can he hold that top power play spot next year? It's tough to figure out his value since 10 of his 32 points last year were on the power play. So I feel like a lot is going to depend on the answer to this question of if he's going to be playing with the man advantage with Ryan Getzlaff. Yeah, we've been playing this game a lot with Ducks defensemen. It feels like it's been years since we've been able to know who is going to helm the top power play unit. We spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. Cam Fowler... Certainly seems like a candidate. Let's go that far to men and quarterback that top power play unit. One issue with Cam Fowler is that he's now uh, going into his age 27 season. By the way, when we say age 27 or age whatever season, we're using the age that the player is going to be as of February 1st. That's how it's tracked on hockey reference. That's how I like to think about it. Sort of like gives a, I don't know. I don't know if there's a really rational reason that I can justify, but it's what we do. It's what we've always done. We're going to keep doing it. Tell us if it's nonsense. Uh, Okay. Cam Fowler entering his age 27 season has yet to outperform his rookie season. It's like he peaked too soon in his rookie season. Cam Fowler scored 40 points in 76 games as a 19 year old. And that year he was powered by 23 power play points and as much power play one deployment as he has ever seen. But now it's been seven years going on eight that Fowler has been able to put that season together, even though he had such an incredible attention grabbing start to 2016-17 when he finished with 39 points. And then Fowler paced for 39 again last season with some favorable shooting percentages at even strength and unfavorable shooting percentages on the power play. And really... I'd expect about the same 39 points again this season. The guy's pretty steady. I certainly would be worried about expecting more as Fowler has had about a 60% share of Anaheim's power play time for most of the last number of years. And that number now seems like it could only go down with Brandon Montour breathing further down his neck. The good news is that Cam Fowler did only have 10 power play points, Elon, like you said. So the silver lining there is that even if Fowler does lose some power play time, it's not like there's a massive power play point hit that he can take from moving to the second unit and still getting eight or 10 power play points there, making 35 points, still a reasonable conservative projection for Cam Fowler next season. Uh You know, Brian, I was actually making the opposite point. I was saying 10 of his 32 points were on the power play. So that's a lot. That's a big hit. You're saying it's actually not that much, but you are right. Even if he's on the second power play, it's not as if he loses all 10 of those power play points. Maybe he loses a couple. So yeah. Yeah. Like it would be worse if he had 20 power play points to get where he was. And then like, there's no way he's going to get 20 power play points with not the highest end power play deployment. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So 
I definitely agree with you. There's no way I'm going higher than 40 for Fowler, since that's what he's been able to do, even with the good deployment. And like you say with Montour, so you're saying 40? I'm going to say 42. Let's move on now to Brandon Montour, the scary monster. I guess this year's potential Matt Dumba, at least that's how I've been seeing him in some projections. People are thinking this is going to be Brandon Montour's year to break out. Many were actually projecting big things from him last year, points-wise. It didn't really pan out, though, but I remember going into the season, a lot of people thought that he was like going to be a sexy, sleepy pick to take at the end of your draft. That was a weird saying that I just came up with. But okay, he had 32 points. Not bad. Now he'll enter his third season, likely getting top power play time like he was seeing at the end of last season. I feel like either he's going to see the top power play on his own, or he's going to see the top power play along with Cam Fowler. I'd be surprised if Montour gets bumped completely since by the end of last year, he was there all the time. So I want to ask you, was he unlucky to only get 32 points last season? Like, is there anything in his underlying numbers that we can say, oh, he actually should have had more? And is there any reason to expect him to get more points next season, aside from just saying he's maturing as a player, so he's probably going to do even better? Well, if you want some cool number that doesn't show up in his counting stats to think that Brandon Montour is going to do better next season, Brandon Montour was the most efficient power play point producer on Anaheim's blue line, although he was also the least efficient even strength point producer on Anaheim's blue line. But at even strength, Montour at least still led the Ducks blue line in shot and shot attempt rates. Uh, And unfortunately for him, he was dead last in shooting percentage in that group and fourth in on ice shooting percentage. So it seemed like he was doing things right, both on the power play and at even strength, but was snake bitten at even strength more than he probably deserved to be. So what we're seeing here in Brandon Montour from 17-18 may be the seeds of offensive production, and there's enough room for growth to get hopeful. The big question is, of course, can he muscle in on Cam Fowler or whoever and increase his own share of power play duties? As I said, he was effective there, at least relative to the rest of the Anaheim defensive group. And, you know, Fowler hasn't given the team much of an incentive to not try someone else out. So I think it's definitely possible that Brandon Montour gets a look as the guy who is apparently next in line on the depth chart for that power play quarterback role. I wouldn't call 32 points completely unlucky for what Brandon Montour was able to put up last year, but I'm also not counting out the likelihood that he's going to just naturally improve as well. This sure feels like it's going to be a career year for the 24-year-old former second-round draft pick. 32 points is a pretty low bar to clear to get there and have a career year, of course, but in the event that Montour gets a leading power play role, he could very well beat his previous career high by 10 or more, taking him up towards 45 points. Yeah, I like 45 points. I'd be tempted to make him the official Matt Dumba and give him 50, but I feel like that's a lot. Like I said, 32 last year, bumping him up to 45. I feel like that's a fair increase. We could just be happy with that. So finally, one more skater on the Ducks before we get to the goalies to close out this chapter. Let's talk about Hampus Lindholm. He's like a solid all-around contributor. Good for a shot or two a game, a couple blocks, sometimes a hit or two. He plays big minutes. He averaged 22 minutes and 44 seconds last year per game. He seems pretty locked in to the second power power play, which is like good. He's not going to get bumped from the second power play, but he's also probably not going to get on the top power play. He had 37 point pace last year, which was much better than his paces in the last couple of seasons, which were below 30. So I'm curious, Brian, is he now a 37, you know, like approaching 40 point player as a solid like second power play guy who plays big minutes or was last year an aberration and we should expect him to be closer to the 30 point guy. That's really not worth owning. Cause I feel like if Hampus Lindholm could put up a 37 point pace for you in your leagues that also count hits and blocks, he could be like a valuable depth defenseman on your roster. But if he's less than 30 points, then we just have to call him a good player overall, but not necessarily a good player for fantasy. Yeah, Lindholm has been much like a Jacob Silverberg 
in that we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for him at least to get an opportunity. You can't say that about Lindholm, that he's had that opportunity compared to Silverberg, who has. I remember last year when Lindholm was on his way to scoring his career-high 13 goals, and it was like a crazy tease because we've known him to be capable for so long, but we also knew that it was not going to last at the rate he was scoring. Lindholm's extra shooting success came exclusively on the power play. On that second unit, he took 22 shots and scored on three of them, which generally is not how defensemen power play shooting percentages go. Uh, But Lindholm was also attempting and registering more shots on goal than ever at even strength, which was a more potentially sustainable way for him to increase his goal scoring numbers. Had Lindholm played the whole year, he'd have set a career high in shots on goal. So that's good news. He's a solid peripherals guy in a league that goes deep on defense, but I wouldn't count on any more than 30 points from him unless his deployment gets a kickstart. Like that's say that's his floor. And like, there's a pretty good chance that's as far as he gets, but 35 points isn't out of the question. All right. So if we're putting down a number, are we putting 30 or 35? I agree with you that he had that high shooting percentage last year. I don't think he's going to be able to hit 37 again at this deployment. I'm even, I'm, I'm good to go 30. I was going to go 35. All right, 32 and a half. Good. I like it when we meet in the middle sometimes because that's where we really want to be, but we've decided to, you know, keep it at multiples of five just to keep it simple for our discussions. I'm liking how this is working out, Brian, and that's it. We've discussed all of the skaters on Anaheim that we wanted to bring up. We're almost on our chapter, but of course we have to go to the goalies. So let's let people know how we're planning on dealing with goalies. We're not going to, like, try to project the save percentage or whatever, the number of wins, but what we are going to do is put goalies into tiers. Our plan is we're going to start with Anaheim, with John Gibson. We're going to work our way all the way down the list for every team. And as we go, we're going to be putting goalies into what tier we think they belong relative to the other goalies that we've already ranked. So after we're done John Gibson, he's going to be in tier one. That's where he'll stay at the end of this episode. After we do Arizona, we'll talk about Antiranta. We'll see where he goes. And as we work our way down, we'll actually start working out a tiering system. And Brian, you always like to talk about goalie tiering in terms of you have your three dimensions. How good's the goalie? How good's the team? What's their likelihood of starting? So we'll go and answer those questions for each of those goalies as we go. So let's talk about John Gibson. He just signed an eight-year, $51.2 million contract extension. And I guess you could say, why not? Like he had an amazing season last year. He played 60 games, which is the most he's ever played. He's usually been injury prone, but last year he was pretty good. Didn't miss too much time. He had a 926 save percentage, his best ever save percentage, aside from his rookie season where he played like three games. Uh, I kind of am concerned about the contract. This doesn't matter for next year's fantasy projection like eight years for a guy who's shown himself to be a little injury prone I wonder if in eight years he might be a lot injury prone but we can let the ducks worry about that and we'll you know when we do our ninth annual almanac then we'll discuss about this uh John Gibson contract but for next year I feel like Anaheim seems like a good enough team like we've talked about some players who are aging and we're afraid of we also have some young players like say an Andre Kasha and of course a Ricard Raquel who's surging plus it seems like they have a pretty solid defense depth they have like Josh Manson also who we haven't discussed like I feel like overall this team's looking good so I feel like John Gibson obviously for now we just have to put him in tier one because there's no one else to compare him to but I have a feeling he might not end up in our tier one but probably our tier two right Yeah, that's exactly where he's got a good shot to land. And I'd say he's borderline tier one. The one thing stopping him from getting there is being on a better team. Uh, We just don't know how far we can trust the Anaheim Ducks 
to be able to, uh, to, well, they don't carry Gibson. Gibson carries them. So we don't know how far they can be carried by him in terms of getting wins. Last season, Gibson was a top five goalie in measures that credit him for how he performed compared to how another NHL goalie would have performed facing the same body of shots. We're talking goals saved above average for 60 minutes and expected save percentage, things like that. But Gibson ranked 14th in actual even strength save percentage amongst all goalies with 35 games played or more, which means that the Ducks... We're making him work for his saves. I've become a fan of what Gibson brings to the table over the last couple of years. He's had a 920, 924, 926 save percentage over the last three seasons. And I consider him a workhorse goalie who's a real asset to his team. I don't know that we can expect him to start more than 60 games. Elon, I have the same sort of nagging injury concerns as well. And I think anything above 60 games, maybe even 60 games is pushing it. And uh, the Ducks seem to maybe think the same because they've committed $2 million to have Ryan Miller uh, available to back Gibson up uh, just on a regular basis or should anything happen in Gibson. But going back to Gibson, it's nice to be able to reasonably hope for a 920 save percentage and 30 or more wins even when the team in front of him is faltering a bit. So Gibson feels like one of the safer bets out there these days. Yeah, the only concern, I guess, is injury risk. But you never know with goalies. He has a bit of a history, but he played a lot last year. So I'm with you. He's a good goalie. He's on a good team. And he's definitely the starter. So it's like maybe even a great goalie, right? Like I'd say like he's on a good team, not an amazing team. Maybe he's like showing himself to be one of the better goalies out there. So yeah, definitely for now, he's our tier one. We'll see who will be the first person to bump him down to tier two. And then let's also talk about Ryan Miller really quickly for people who are in deep enough leagues where backups get considered. He had a great year last year at a 928 save percentage, his highest save percentage since 2009-10 as a saber. It's the second highest of his career. So obviously being a backup suits Ryan Miller. The fewer games he plays, the more likely he is to play well, I think is my takeaway. So, but Brian, obviously Ryan Miller, decent spot start optionally. He showed himself to be last year. If let's say Gibson gets injured, how much do you think you would want to depend on Ryan Miller? How do you think he would hold up if he were like the starter for say a month? Do you think he still has it in him? He's definitely at the end of his career. He's in his age 38 season, but he put up some good numbers last year in his 28 games played. He did. You know, it took me a while to realize that Ryan Miller could still be productive at this stage in his career, but he has been a surprisingly serviceable guy uh, for a goalie with a lot of miles on him heading into, like you said, his age 38 season. The one blemish in Ryan Miller's last several years was his first year starting with Vancouver. That's the only year where he posted a save percentage that was notably lower than the expected save percentage given the types of shots he was facing. But every other year since his first year as Vancouver starter, and also for several before that year, Miller has been as good as an average NHL goalie. And in the case of 2017-18, he was uh, surprisingly way better than an average NHL goalie. So I expect him to be as good as an average backup Uh, That's probably what you can hope for. There's a chance Ryan Miller can handle his business reasonably well should Gibson need some time off. But 38-year-old goalie, you don't want to be making any big bets on that. Right, yeah. So I think for now, obviously, we'll put him in tier two under John Gibson. And I'm sure a lot of people will jump ahead of Ryan Miller as he's a backup. But it'll be fun when we talk about the other backups to see how they compare to each other. So we'll both be doing rankings for the starters and the backups. And there'll be some intermingling in between when we get to guys like Roberto Luongo and James Reimer. Okay, so Brian, that's it. We've finished the first chapter of the world's first ever NHL audio almanac. How are you feeling? I'm feeling so good. I'm ready to record the next chapter right now. All right, so we're going to do it. So 
If you're listening to the audiobook, take a break, have a drink of Coke, do whatever you need to do, and we're going to be uh, recording our next episode, and you don't care, because you're just listening to them whenever you want. But for those of you in the chat room, hang tight, because we're going to talk about the Arizona Coyotes next. Thank you, and goodbye. We weren't paid by Coke for that reference. Yeah, also, I don't like how I said thank you and goodbye. How are we going to end these things? I need to say, normally I say, let's cue the outro music and Brian read us the credits. I guess we don't have credits. I know you wanted to, like, talk and, like, mention every name of every Kickstarter backer, but I feel like that would be a really long, boring list of credits. Maybe we'll do that at the end of the last chapter. But hey, let's cue the outro music because it's pretty awesome music. And we'll talk to you guys soon about the Arizona Coyotes. Bye! Bye!